I'd like to invite you on a walk. I don't know if you can hear the bird, the birds in the distance. But I hear them and I wonder, who is that? What are they on about today? I see one in a bush in front of me that I'm walking toward. Going from branch to branch. There's another. Okay, so that was a finch, the one in the bush that's now taken off in another distance and then a dove of some sort that has gone behind me it appears to be changing position and I'm guessing that the disturbance was probably me More finches in front of my house that I'm looking back. It's about 25 meters away. There's this tree that smells, quite frankly, like semen in front of my house when it flowers. It's got orange little berry fruit throughout the colder seasons. But a lot of birds like that tree. There's also a magpie, or I want to say two or three magpies, that make a triangle flying pattern uh, from the neighbor's house in front of us in our house the two points on our end are on a little spot by the garage and on the corner of a roof a few weeks ago on a walk much like this one I saw, well I heard, repetitive sounds from a bird, and it was curious because it was of a pattern that isn't as common. And it was a crow flying above a kestrel, and the kestrel was sort of just patiently moving very slowly but the crow was above it and making as if to peck it over and over again while making a lot of noise and this went on for about 15 minutes or so they were going round and round in the sky when finally apparently annoyed the kestrel managed to get higher 
then the crow, in the moment this happened, the crow dove down maybe 200 meters away behind some buildings. And this confused me. This is... It, it seemed like very expensive behavior. Why would a crow spend so much time bothering a kestrel like this? I was aware that murders of crows would sometimes go after birds of prey or other birds, but that was usually as a group where they can pose some real damage to the bird. Here, the crow was kind of just being really, really annoying to the kestrel. It wasn't really attacking the kestrel. It was harassing it. So, this curiosity has been needling me for a while. And as I've done my share of googling, I found that this is something called mogging. Where a bird, like a crow, or sometimes even a pigeon, some sort of bird that is not necessarily a bird of prey, harasses a bird of prey. Sometimes other birds that aren't birds of prey, usually to ensure that there is not additional space taken up by different kinds of nests and eggs in the area, in terms of looking for prime nesting sites in an area, but also as a display of fitness. A signal, in this case, to the other crows that this crow is strong. Strong enough to waste all that energy climbing up higher than the kestrel in order to bother the kestrel. I'm kind of reminded by African wild dogs harassing lions. <clears throat> and sometimes when you have a bunch of dogs playing, uh, the little lap dogs harassing large dogs. The Plains Native American practice of counting coop, of going up to an enemy and poking them with a special stick instead of killing them seems like a similar practice to me. It's a practice that solidified your membership as a male of the tribe, as a full-fledged warrior, because you'd have the ability to kill someone, but then choose not to kill them. In the Old Testament, David, before he is King David, David of the David and Goliath affair, 
does the same thing to King Saul. When King Saul, jealous of David's notoriety, starts to go after him as a potential rebel. And to prove that he doesn't actually want to fight Saul or displace Saul, David sneaks up to him when Saul is sleeping at night and leaves evidence that he was there. In the end, David does indeed replace Saul for whatever that's worth. So, to understand what's going on with an individual, it's useful to look at what's going on with the many individuals around that individual. To see what's going on in an area, it's useful to look at the birds. Cuckoo Lane, the Irish mythological hero, had the ability to speak the language of the birds. And this, we are told, made him impossible to ambush. Which makes sense. If you're going around in an area and you know how birds behave, if you know what their calls mean, it's hard to be surprised. You'll know when there's a cat in an area. You'll know when there are other humans in an area because of how the birds behave. So too, with the plants, for knowing the soil, and the fungi. In some fish, schools of fish determine the behavior of predatory fish and eels. We might see some of that in human behavior as well. In a theory of violence that has to do with a very situationist approach, fear builds up in a population until it must be released. To lower the chances of violence, then, in this framework, we want to make things boring. Once, I was sitting at home in the dark, and it was December and no one else was at home. I was lost in thought when I heard someone within the house. I stepped outside of the room and there was a man, surprised. He was tall, unusual, 
in terms of ethnicity for our house and area and as well as how he was clothed. I introduced myself, asked him for his name, and shook his hand. People might wonder why you would react that way to someone trespassing in your house. And that's why, because you don't want to add to the fear if you're in such a situation, even if I would have won an altercation, which he was a bigger man than me, I didn't know what weapons he had on him, but even if I'd won, it would have been a costly affair. It was easier to make things boring, to make things commonplace, to reduce the fear and say, hey, let's get into a regular ritual that two people get into when they meet one another for the first time. Let's shake hands. And the fear was there nonetheless, because he stumbled out of the house while giving some excuse about why he was there in the first place. In a hurry, out the door, into the snow, into the night. But imagine if I had responded differently. Maybe me, as the potential prey, would have caused this attacker to become more of an attacker. In this case, if I am the prey, then I'm akin to the school of fish that determine the behavior of the predator. Looking at lots of videos on YouTube of fights that happen, it's apparent to me that this kind of de-escalation is often not present, possibly because it's hard to view humans as belonging to a similar behavioral ecosystem as other creatures, in the same way that to look at the behavior of a sparrow or a finch or a robin, it makes sense to look at the behavior of the cat, the raccoon, or the human. In that same way, it's often difficult for us, living as we do with the moral systems that we live with, to imagine a situation in which the behavior of the person in front of you is determined by something bigger than the individual, by the interaction between you and that individual as opposed to the individual alone, so that when someone appears threatening, we add to the threat by fearing the threat. So in situations where there's a belligerent person, often drunk and uncoordinated enough to pose perhaps an actual threat, people, instead of taking that human being 
for the confused person that they are, take them as a threat because they are making threats. And so they play into the script, the script of a dangerous person, even though a lot of times in these videos, the person who's threatened is actually far more dangerous in effect than the person doing the threatening, which is why these videos are showing people using martial arts in everyday street situations. But if they're doing that, then perhaps, perhaps they should know better. If Alice is threatening Bob, and Alice doesn't really have any knowledge or skills in violence, and Bob does, then is the threat from Alice really a threat? Or is Bob impatient, playing into the narrative, and responding to Alice by shutting her down physically, quickly, and violently? So in, the, in those situations where a clearly unskilled person is threatening a skilled person, that skilled person generally does not have to actually resort to violence. And the fact that they actually did resort to violence in many of these situations speaks to the fact that they weren't quite aware of the role that they were playing in this interaction. And that when the unskilled person threatened them, they had the option to de-escalate. They had the option to ask the person what they were feeling and to be there with them in that feeling. When you walk around in the woods, there is a way that you can walk to ensure that you see more of the wildlife. It's a way that you can walk to ensure that you can keep your eyes up and looking wherever you want. Instead of walking head first, you walk feet first, slowly, at about half stride. The edge of the outside of your feet hitting the ground first as opposed to the heel. And this looks kind of funny, but it allows you to proceed slowly and carefully, taking in everything around you. If you have an occasion to try it sometime, I recommend it. You might even notice that some of the animals that would normally run away do not. Keep in mind that this is a pace of about a minute per step, which is a very slow pace, but if you watch a jaguar or some other predator in the wild, before the moment that they run after their prey, they're often moving in similarly slow steps. So, 
when we interact with each other, when we interact with ourselves, we have a similar ability to slow down our thoughts. The Vajrayana Buddhist practice of Shine meditation, which may be one of the broader class of cooling down meditations, as in cooling down from thought, allows something like this to happen in a more dramatically noticeable way. And once you've experienced this meditation, this subsiding, like the ripples in a pond growing still over time, you may bring this to everything else. So that when you notice your thoughts, you may notice them with enough space to ask, just as you would ask with the bird, with the sparrow, what is the bird doing here? What is this sparrow doing here? What is this specific sparrow, who you might name, doing here in this neighborhood at this time? Why? Is he feeling what he's feeling? What is he about to do? What does his behavior mean about the other birds and creatures in the area? Or the weather, even? Just as you may ask that with a bird, you may ask that about your thoughts. It's easiest to do this, I've found, with seemingly negative thoughts. I say seemingly negative since there is no negative without a positive or vice versa. It is easier to inquire this way with negative thoughts because they're more salient to us at times. So when we catch a glimpse of seeming envy, or hate, or disgust, we can ask, what purpose is this creature serving in this forest, in this ecosystem? If I'm being led some way to do something that is in my place to do in this ecosystem, how is this thought helping that? With moral disgust, we can often do this easily, because it's usually clear that the disgust serves as some sort of rallying point for a larger collective. To be disgusted by the idea of two men together 
might not make as much sense at first until you realize that that disgust brings a lot of people together and they derive a sense of identity from it in the same way that today many people purport to hate Nazis when there are very few if really any Nazis around because it brings them together it gives them a rallying flag to gather around to justify their place as a collective within collectives they stand now against an evil and standing against this evil being disgusted in this way acts as a marker of the group this has helped me a lot in the last few years of my life I find it much easier now to interact with people and to feel a sense of belonging and maybe it's from this observation there was an interview of the man who interested in an octopus filmed this documentary about him visiting this particular octopus every day for a whole year which is about the lifespan of an octopus apparently and he said at first in that place he felt a visitor but as he got to know the sharks and the fish and the other wildlife there as well as the octopus as he got to know all of them he felt less and less as a visitor tracking their behavior beginning to understand why they were doing what they were doing the patterns of their feeding and interactions with each other gave him a sense of belonging he started to feel less like a visitor and more like someone who could speak the language asking questions like these about moral disgust and so on asking questions about how often people invite each other to things or how often they respond emotionally to another person and how often they don't how often they text each other all these observations over the years all these theories of social interaction and change have helped me feel like I belong to this seemingly foreign ecosystem of humanity and so I offer you these methods these practices for when you ever feel like a visitor so that you may observe carefully and pay attention knowing that all you need 
to feel a sense of belonging is that ability to pay attention in the first place to look at yourself the people and creatures around you to allow yourself to wonder why they fly in this way or that and to see how you are a part of them and they are a part of you because this existence this life it's yours and it's mine 